Well, I've determined on the basis of a test I took that I am pretty awesome. I concluded that because I took a test that revealed like the ideal man. And I came out in the awesome category. The description went kind of like this. The awesome man is in his mid-50s, about 5'11", about 215 pounds. He uh, has way too many hobbies, things like horses and welding and blacksmithing, fishing, favorite instrument, the cello, personality type, Little to none. (laughs) Hairstyle, balding. And the kicker was, if people don't find you handsome, at least they should find you handy. From the old Red Green show. Based on that description, I came out as awesome. Now the question would be, Who wrote the test? Answer, I did. (laughs) I wrote the test, and then I measured myself against it, and I came out awesome. Now you would say, well, that's ridiculous. I agree. But that is exactly what the legalist does. The legalist, he or she, writes his own standard of measure and then measures himself or herself against this standard and concludes spiritually, I'm awesome. I would suggest to you if every legalist measured themselves not against their own homemade, man-made standard, but against the actual standard of God, he or she would have no choice but to flee to the amazing grace of God. That's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with us to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapters 1 and 2 basically deal with the corruption of the plan of salvation. Those that add some sort of religious activity, some sort of work to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And Paul's told us again and again, you can't mix any works with grace or it ceases to be grace. He said it becomes a different gospel, which is actually no gospel at all. But starting in the latter part of chapter 2, running now into chapter 3, it's really a discussion about those who have trusted Christ as Savior, salvation by grace through faith. But now as Christians, we start to slide back into works. We start to slide back into a performance-based system where we think now with more religion, with more works, with doing the right things, I can somehow merit more favor, more righteousness, more acceptance with God. 
A couple of weeks ago, we finished chapter 3, verse 14, with the reminder that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, because of the promise that is received by faith, any person can become a child of Abraham and be a recipient of the promise, a recipient of the inheritance of the salvation that God offers. We pick it up then in verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referencing to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So basically, the argument is this. He's using a human illustration that if somebody enters into a covenant agreement, the Greek word would reflect something like a will. So let's just go with that. Somebody writes up his or her will, and then it is legally ratified. Someone else that comes along is not free to just change the will. If I have a will and die, somebody can't come along and just say, I think I'll change that. It's legally binding. So he's saying if that's true from a human perspective, it would be all the more true with God. So God entered into a covenant agreement with Abraham that was based on a promise. The promise that if you believe by faith, you enter into that inheritance, you enter into that promise. There is in the discussion a reminder that the promise was to Abraham and his seed, singular, referencing Christ. Christ would be the fulfillment of the promise. Therefore, everyone who believes by faith is in Christ. And because you're in Christ, you're in the seed, which then makes you a recipient of the promise. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need all these legal requirements. You simply are a recipient of the inheritance because you're in Christ, the promised seed. So then the argument goes, 430 years later, God brought forth the law. But the law does not have the power to invalidate the promise. You can't say, well, God started with a promise and then he changed his mind and decided to make salvation on the basis of the law. You can't invalidate the promise that was ratified. Therefore, if someone says on the basis of the law, on the basis of works, on the basis of a bunch of religious activity, you can merit favor with God, then it has disqualified the promise. And then he ends that discussion with saying, but God made a promise. And so the promise is binding. No one can change that. Which then raises the logical question. Then what's the purpose of the law? Why did God give it 430 years later? Verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. 
until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. So why the law? He says, because of transgressions. Now transgressions isn't just another word for sin. It's a very technical term, and it means to violate the law. So in order to violate the law, there has to be a law. That's the point there. And so God gave the law as a standard in order to reveal transgressions, to reveal uh, the ways that we transgress his law. So the logic would go something like this. God made a promise, a promise of salvation that could be received by faith. But we as people have a tendency to think, I can do it myself through a bunch of religion, through a bunch of religious activities. Somehow I can make myself good enough for God. And we do that by setting up artificial standards. Religion is full of that. And as long as you do these activities, as long as you jump through these hoops, as long as you abide by these standards, therefore you're good enough. Or we compare ourselves with one another. You hear this all the time. People will say, I'm as good as the next guy. Or if anybody's getting into heaven, then certainly I am. And so we create our own man-made standards, and then we measure ourselves, and then we conclude, I think I'm okay. As long as we're in that frame of mind, we have no need of a savior. So God brings forth the law, 430 years later, which is the standard. God reveals his own holiness through the law and reveals that we're actually not okay. We're not awesome. Actually, we're in real trouble because we don't even come close to keeping the standard. And so it exposes our need for a savior. Now, the whole idea of the law came through a process of mediation. It went from God to the angels to Moses to the people. And the whole system was kind of this two-party system, a holy God and sinful people. So God lays out the standard, and if you obey it, you'll be blessed, and if you disobey it, you'll be judged. But what the people constantly realize is we can't keep the standard. We aren't measuring up. We're not even coming close. So there was constantly this mediation, which would have been the whole temple and sacrificial system, and all of that was necessary because they were constantly aware we're not measuring up. We're not righteous. We're not keeping the standard. We're in real trouble. And the text says that was necessary until the seed, until Christ came to fulfill the promise. So it was just a temporary picture of what was to come. Now, verse 20, for your information, there are over 250 interpretations of verse 20. So we probably won't go through all those, nor will we solve the problem. But in its simplest form, I think, Paul is just intending to say that the promise made to Abraham was not through a mediator. A mediator implies two parties. In this case, a holy God and sinful man. But the promise was a holy God making a unilateral promise. If you go back and read the text in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham slept while God entered into the promise. And God basically said, Abraham, if you fail to keep the covenant, or if I fail to keep the covenant, I will shed my blood to make it right. There's no mediation. It's a promise from one person. And that's the essence of what's being said in verse 20. 
Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. The law wasn't bad. The law reflects the perfect character of God. And what he's saying is if someone could have kept the law perfectly, it would have led to life. But the point is nobody can. Nobody even comes close. So verse uh, 22. But the scripture has shut up. That word means to throw in prison. The scripture has thrown in prison everyone under sin. Why did it do that? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So basically the text says the law comes along and provides the standard. The prosecuting attorney comes along and says, you know, I've looked at your performance based on the standard. You are guilty. You are really guilty. And I have no choice but to throw you in prison. And there you are locked in prison with no hope. There's no amount of good deeds that makes the bad deeds go away. But along comes Jesus. And Jesus comes and visits you in prison and says, I have a get out of jail card and it's free. I paid your debt for your sin and I now offer you freedom from prison and I offer it freely to you to receive simply by faith. So the whole logic of the argument is God made a promise and the promise was salvation by faith that God would do the work and offer it freely as a gift. But we have a tendency to think we can do it ourselves, that we can make ourselves good enough, that we can get enough religion or enough good work or somehow set up an artificial human standard, measure ourselves by it, and think we're okay. So God says, well, here's actually the standard, and this is what you'll be measured by. And when we measure ourselves by that standard, we realize, I'm not even coming close. I'm in real trouble. I've been thrown in prison. I'm condemned. I have no hope. It's at that point that I'm actually open to the idea that there may be a solution, that Jesus has made a way out. Until I reach that point, I'm really not too interested in whatever Jesus has to offer. I'll do it myself. Now, there is a historical timeline. There was Abraham, then there was Moses in the law, and then there was the fulfillment of the promise in Christ coming and his death, burial, and resurrection. But I think each of us personally has this timeline as well. God made a promise that he would offer you salvation freely as a gift. But we have a tendency to think we can do it ourselves. And all of us go through that process until we get to a point where we recognize, I can't do this myself, I'm not measuring up, I'm not even coming close, I am in real trouble, I've been thrown in a prison of my own making, and there is no way out. It's at that point that you are open to the idea that there's a solution, and God comes and visits you in jail and says, I have the way out. I have paid your debt, and I offer it to you freely as a gift of my grace. Just receive it. And I will declare you to be righteous in the courts of heaven forever. So the purpose of the law was to expose our desperate need in order that we would receive the promise. 
Verse 23. But before faith came, and there is a definite article in the Greek, before the faith came, before you believed, before faith came, we were kept in custody. That phrase means to be well guarded in prison. Under the law, being shut up, being thrown in prison to the faith which was later to be revealed. That's actually a positive statement in verse 23. What it is saying is that because of the law, God revealing his standard, you were thrown in prison and the prison was heavily guarded. That would be like shame and guilt and despair and hopelessness. Those were necessary to get you to the point to realize you have a need. You have a need for a savior. You can't do this yourself. It was necessary to lock you up and guard you in that until you were ready to receive the way out. Therefore, verse 24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now, what is a tutor? If you have a King James, it says a schoolmaster. It's really an unfortunate translation. When we hear the word tutor, we think someone who tutors us in math or science or some of the more difficult subjects, but that is not what this word means. It was a Greek word that uh, was describing a typically wealthy family that didn't really want to mess with their kids, so they hire a tutor, which was really a guardian. Typically, the tutor, the guardian, was a slave, and the slave was in charge of the children. And the slave was employed to make sure the children went to school, the children did their homework, the children stayed out of trouble, the children didn't uh, embarrass the parents. And typically the tutor was given permission to do whatever is necessary to keep these kids in line. So the tutors typically were very aggressive. They tended to be very uh, mean. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you go back and look like in an encyclopedia or something like that, if you look up this word in this first century tutor, typically they're always pictured with a whip or a rod because that was typical. They would do what is necessary to whip these kids into shape because their job depended on it and the wealthy parents didn't want to mess with it. So the tutor was not a nice person that sat alongside you and helped you with algebra. The tutor would do whatever is necessary and typically very aggressive to get you to obey. And that's the description of the law. The law comes along, it's not very friendly. It exposes all the ways that we sin, all the ways that we transgress. It reminds us of our shame and our guilt and our failures and our struggles and our hopelessness and our despair. It basically beats us up. The tutor takes us into the dark room and beats us up again and again and again. What was the purpose of that? In order to lead us to Christ. In order that we might be justified, declared legally righteous in the courts of heaven forever. So the tutor had a very important role. But now, if you're inclined to write in your Bible, I would circle those two words. They're critical. But now, that was necessary to get you to Christ. But now that you are in Christ, the tutor's no longer necessary. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Something has radically changed. You are now children of God. You are now sons and daughters of God. You don't still need a tutor. A lot of Christians continue to struggle with this idea that if you really embrace the fullness of a theology of grace, that somehow Christians are going to spin out of control. They're going to disobey. They're going to do all kinds of naughty things. And what keeps me in line is the law. I need to be beat up. I need to be whipped. I need to spend time in the darkroom. I need to be somehow beat up into, uh, into obedience so I'll do what I'm supposed to do. And as long as you think that way, you live your Christian life in slavery, in prison, struggling day after day after day because the Bible is very clear. The tutor did not have the capacity to make us righteous. The tutor used external pressure to conform us to the law, but it could not at the end of the day make us right. It could not make us obey. It could not really deliver the goods. If the law, if life in the darkroom could not make you righteous before salvation, what would make you think, now that you're in Christ, that will work? It didn't work before. It's not going to work now. It simply has no power to externally conform you to the image of Christ. What has changed is now you are in Christ. Now something deep and radical has changed. The change is now inside out. It's not an external pressure. It's an internal change that is absolutely life-changing. We don't need the tutor. We don't need the law. We don't need the darkroom. Everything's changed. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. It's really hard to determine if he's referring to spirit baptism or water baptism. It's probably good not to be dogmatic either way. But either way, you end up in the same place. If he's talking about spirit baptism, and he has talked about that in chapter 3, the moment you trust Christ as Savior, you receive the very Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that renews you and makes you a new creation in Christ. It's the very power of God in you that is beginning a process inside of you, and he promises, I'll be faithful to complete it all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. So it's an inside-out process. He told us in chapter 3 that if you started on the basis of the Spirit, what makes you think that this journey would be completed by works of the flesh? It started by the Spirit. It's going to be completed by the Spirit. It's not performance. It's promise. The moment you trust Christ to save you, you are in Christ. You are in the promise, and that changes everything from the inside out. The idea of being clothed is taking the concept of a Greek child who would have worn childish clothing until that point where he is declared to be a man, no longer under a tutor. And at that point, they would put on an adult toga, an adult robe that would identify you're a man now, you're a woman now, you are an adult. So the idea is we are now sons of God. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
Therefore, everything has changed. I don't need a tutor. I don't need to be beat up in the dark room. The, the system has changed. It's not performance. It's promise. And that's what is ultimately life-changing. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. This is back then where the discussion began, that we don't become children of Abraham through works, through performance, through circumcision, which was the debate of the day, but rather through a promise. And those who believe by faith enter into the promise are in Christ and are heirs to the inheritance that was promised to Abraham. Now, I think the verse that is uh, staggering is verse 28. On the basis of grace, there is no more distinction in value between a Jew and a Greek, between a male and a female, between a slave and a free man. You have to understand, in a first century context, those were dramatic contrasts. Everyone would have understood that in a performance-based Greek culture, the difference between these groups would have been dramatic. But what Paul is saying is now in Christ. There is no difference. We're all one in Christ. Whether you have been a Christian for 50 years or whether you've been a Christian for 24 hours, you stand equal before God. There is no such thing as a Christian that's more than or less than. There's no one more righteous. There's no one more accepted. There's no one more loved. There's no one more celebrated. There's no more than and less than. You may have had a great week this week as you walked with Christ, or you may have had a stinky week and you were naughty all week, but you stand equal before God because it's not based on your performance. It's not performance. It's promise. And you stand in Christ. You're just as loved, just as righteous, just as accepted, just as celebrated because of the radical grace of God. Now just imagine what would happen if we actually believe this. Imagine what it would be like if I could learn to view myself through the lens of grace. And rather than weekly assessing my performance and beating myself up and struggling with that, I was reminded that this isn't performance, it's promise. And that before God, because I'm in Christ, I'm righteous and I'm accepted and I'm loved and I'm celebrated. And that's just as true on my bad days as it is on my worst days. What if we would focus our attention on Christ rather than our performance? If you go back and count them seven times in those few verses, it it names the name of Christ. It's Christ, 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 Christ. It's not you. It's not your performance. It is Christ who has made the difference from the inside out. If we'd learn to understand that and think that way, it changes everything. And imagine if not only do I view myself that way, but I begin to view my fellow Christians that way. Instead of being prone to pick and fix and correct and change and judge and criticize, 
We actually viewed one another through the lens of grace and to see one another as God sees us and look beyond performance to promise and realize that on your best days and on your worst days, there's something to celebrate because according to who you are in Christ, you have been radically changed. What if in our accountability groups, what if in our small groups, what if in our relationships with Christian friends, rather than always assessing how many ways we've let God down this week, all the ways we failed, all the ways we struggled, all the ways that we're a loser, that we completely change that orientation and we actually see each other through the lens of grace and remind one another what's true in Christ. And it's not performance, it's promise. And the last time I checked the book, even though you had a steam week because you are in Christ. I just want to remind you of this. You are awesome. What if we were to see ourselves and to see one another so radically different according to promise, not performance? Just imagine what that would be like. Imagine if we believe this so much that we actually lived like it. Just imagine. Our Father, we're thankful this morning for your radical, scandalous grace. Lord, it's so hard in a performance-based culture to remember that we stand before you on the basis of a promise, not a performance. That what we have, we have because we're in Christ. There's nobody more than, nobody less than. No first string and second string. No winners and losers, but just each of us radically changed and made right by the power of Jesus. Lord, this morning we celebrate these lives who have been radically identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that stand right before you, not because of performance, but because of the promise. Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe this, to believe this to the point that we actually live like it in how we view ourselves and how we view our fellow Christians. In Jesus' name, amen.